This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 18th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to look at a number of developments that are taking a place in the area of federal taxes, including a couple of things happening for the beneficial ownership information reporting that we've discussed multiple times here. First, we're going to find that FinCEN has added more information to their frequently asked questions page. So we'll take a, look, take a look at a bunch of new questions, including some new information provided by those questions by FinCEN. Next up, we have a bill that passed the House that would give a limited extension of time for some initial beneficial ownership information reports to be filed. Now, key issue at this point, it is only passed the House and it is not a full-blown delay of BOI. So we need to understand because I've seen a lot of misinformation about this particular program. So I think we need to be very careful. Now, remember that it's not currently the law. Even though it passed the House overwhelmingly, we still have to get to a vote in the Senate. And then number two, uh, you know, we also have to remember that it's not really a full-blown delay this for a whole nother year and now we go back and ignore it. There will still be reports due by March of 2024, even if this bill were enacted as it stands right now into law. We also have the IRS releasing the mileage rates for 2024, and the Supreme Court agrees to hear a estate tax valuation case we discussed here earlier uh, to resolve a split between the circuits regarding the impact of having life insurance inside of an entity where the entity then has to redeem a deceased shareholder. Does that liability essentially get entered as an offset to the asset? And We'll talk a little bit about that. It's a little bit odd case, so there are some unique facts that may cause issues here that could allow the Supreme Court to dodge the issue. But I think the reason they're picking this up is to try to make it clear whether or not generally you would have to pick up that liability. Uh, you would use that liability to reduce the value of the company for estate tax purposes, or if in fact it doesn't matter. You just ignore that. That doesn't impact the valuation. And then, as we said, so we have a couple of those neat things in there. Let's go ahead then and get started on the FAQ. Now, what we're going to talk about here are two different things. First is H.R. 5119, the Protect Small Business and Prevent Illicit Financial Activity Act, which passed the House on December 13th of 2023, but awaits action in the Senate. And it's not clear that we'll get that action uh, prior to the Senate leaving town for the year. Uh, so we'll take a look at that. And again, because of what, as we'll discuss, this actually extends, it probably doesn't matter if the Senate acts on this uh, prior to leaving town. And then we'll also talk about the FAQ update, what was added to by FinCEN to the FAQ on December 12th. So let's start by looking at the FAQs, issues that came up, right? And FinCEN has had a bunch, again, as I've told you before, we keep having all these brand new updates that are coming up in FinCEN, right? So we have various things that have been coming up that are going in the FAQ. And the first one we're going to add, and there are a bunch that come up here on December 12th, is the first question we're going to ask is, how will companies become aware of the BOI reporting requirements? This is question A4. And it doesn't really tell us much, to be honest. It tells us they're engaged in a robust outreach and education campaign to raise awareness of and help reporting companies understand the new requirements. That will include virtual and in-person outreach events. 
uh, and comprehensive guidance in a variety of formats and languages, including multimedia content and the Small Entity Compliance Guide, which we already discussed here, as well as new channels of communications, including social media platforms, although they don't tell us which social media platforms they plan to use. FinCEN is also engaging with governmental offices at the federal and state levels, small business and trade associations, and interest groups. And they'll continue to provide guidance at their webpage. Okay, great. As of the moment, though, in case you're, you know, I have not really seen a whole lot going on that would reach anybody who doesn't know about the FinCEN's uh, webpage for BOI. Now, hopefully you know about that and you can keep your clients up via that method. Uh, I think we already mentioned that they had an attempt to have a uh, basically conduct, well, actually, I guess it was this past week. They announced that they were going to have a webcast. Uh, it was going to be on Zoom. And they, so they were going to have, you know, where you can come on, FinCEN and do a presentation. And of course, people would be able to present and ask questions. The problem was that that Zoomcast filled up 10 minutes after they sent out the email. And that email probably didn't reach the vast majority of people involved in this, which suggests, A, a lot of people are concerned about this thing, but B, it turns out that, you know, we don't really have much information to go on. We're not, you know, they, they're not really, I think, ready for what's happening here. So, sad, but it's kind of what we're doing. Uh, question B8 was who can file a BOI report on behalf of reporting company and what information will be collected on filers. Uh, this is probably important for those of you who plan to file reports for clients uh, because this is what you'll be providing. It is very clear anyone whom the reporting company authorized can act on this behalf, such as an employee, an owner, or a third-party service provider may file the report on the reporting company's behalf. When submitting that report, the individual filers should be prepared to provide basic contact information about themselves, including their name, email address, or phone number. Now, as we'll discover later, there is going to come an extra little detail with this filing for somebody uh, that you probably will need to consider. It may change things slightly, uh, but in essence, we, we now have this brand new thing coming up. Finally, we have next up, we have question uh, C5. And question C5, you know, asks about does the activity or revenue of a company determine whether it is a reporting company? And their answer is effectively it depends. But what they really are going to tell you here is that basically, uh, generally, unless you meet an exclusion, you're going to have to file this report. And as they said, basically, neither in, and one of the key eyes here, neither engaging in passive activities like holding rental property, for example, nor being unprofitable necessarily exempts an entity from the BOI reporting requirements. Or as I've noted multiple times, there is no small business exception here. So it's important to understand they describe basically the roughly the large business exception, the large entity exception. They, they describe that there's also, you know, 22 others that are certain entities, normally ones have to register with various uh, regulatory agencies and give their ownership information, already have to handle this or, you know, maybe exempt, but pretty much everybody else, not. Nah, you're not going to be exempt. Next up, they go in this question C6, and I can see this causing some confusion. But C6 says, is a sole proprietorship? Now, please remember, when FinCEN is talking, they are not talking tax status generally. They are talking legal status. So it's a pure vanilla sole proprietorship. There is no entity whatsoever. It's not just you have an entity, but for tax purposes, we're ignoring it. 
it's that there is no entity. So the answer is no sole proprietorship created for or foreign sole proprietorship to business in the United States by filing a document with Secretary of State or similar office, right? Unless it was created doing that method. It's only if it's created, you know, basically in the United States by filing such a document, filing a document with a government agency to obtain an IRS employer identification number, a fictitious business name, or professional occupational license does not create a new entity and therefore does not make a sole proprietorship filing such a document a reporting company. The clarification for those, of, for those in tax is a single member LLC will be reporting unless it meets another exclusion because that is a legal entity. Check the box does not apply for purposes of this report. Check the box is a tax concept only. It will not have an impact on these rules. And that's important to remember as we look at all this. Now, next up, we have a little discussion. Uh, this one is, as I went a little too far there, question F7. Does a reporting company have to report information about its parent or subsidiary companies? And the answer is here, no, though if a special reporting rule applies, the reporting company may report a parent company's name instead of beneficial owner information. Uh, reporting company usually must report information about itself, its beneficial owners, and for reporting companies created and registered on or after January 1st, 2024, its company applicant. However, under a special reporting rule, a reporting company may report a parent company's name in lieu of information about its beneficial owners if its beneficial owners only hold their ownership interest in the reporting company through the parent company, and the parent company is itself an exempt entity. So, okay, it'll be an interesting aside there. Um, and it is kind of an interesting aside. It also is a little bit more interesting in that it appears this is suggesting that, that these uh, entities will report even though there is an exemption for a wholly owned subsidiary. So we'll have to kind of figure out how this works out in the exemptions versus this answer where you would report only the subsidiary and its parent because the parent was exempt. So that's kind of an interesting answer that they gave, but still an answer, you know, pretty much as we'd expect. Uh, question F8 makes it just comes through in what we've known from day one but this is going to make it very explicit on the FAQ. The question is, can a reporting company report a P.O. box as its current address? Answer, no, absolutely not. The reporting company address must be a U.S. street address and cannot be a P.O. box. You cannot use a P.O. box for reporting, period. That's it, end of day. And it also needs to meet the requirements so you can't use a, you know, an address of a third party like your CPA firm or your law firm got to be where the actual operations are. So, nope. Uh, P.O. Box, not going to work. We knew it wasn't going to work, and uh, they, they make that very, very clear here. Question nine. Well, have I met the requirements if I filed a form of report that provides beneficial ownership information to a state office, my bank, a financial institution, or the IRS? And this answer is simply no. As it says, reporting companies must report beneficial ownership information directly to FinCEN. Congress enacted a new law, the Corporate Transparency Act, that requires reporting of beneficial ownership information directly to FinCEN. State and local governments, financial institutions, other federal agencies, such as the IRS, may separately require entities to report certain beneficial infor ownership information to them. However, by law, these requirements are not a substitute for reporting beneficial ownership information to FinCEN. So again, doesn't matter. You file a report with the state. You know, you may say, look, a lot of the detail here, if you're in Arizona, is very, very similar for a corporation to what we're reporting on the Arizona Corporation Commission report. So, I mean, really, do we, we can ignore FinCEN? No, you can't. 
You can't ignore the FinCEN reporting because FinCEN needs that information. They're, they don't, they're not required by Congress to go back and try to figure out where in the world you know, that, that information might be on the state of Arizona's website. Question G5 looks at how to determine the date of creation or registration. As we know, it's going to be important for a couple of reasons. Number one, we need to be created essentially uh, before January 1st and then of 24, because that's going to have an effect on initial reporting dates uh, and give us the longest run to initial reporting dates. But then also we're going to have to keep coming up with that date in the future because that's when we start the clock toward when our initial report needs to be done. And the answer comes back to the question of how does a company create a register after January 1st of 2024 determine its date of creation and registration. Date of creation and registration for a reporting company is the earlier of the date on which the reporting company receives actual notice that's creation or registration has become effective or to a secretary of state or similar office first provides public notice such as through a publicly accessible registry that the domestic reporting company has been created or the foreign reporting company has been registered. Now, it then goes on, that, that just repeats what's in the rule. FinCEN recognizes there are various state filing practices. In certain states, automated systems provide notice of creation or registration, newly created registered entities. Uh, in other states, no actual notice of creation or registration is provided, and newly created companies receive notice through the public posting of state records. FinCEN believes individuals who create registered reporting companies will likely stay apprised of a creation or registration notices publication, given those in individuals' interest in establishing an operating business or engaging the activity for which the reporting company is created. Basically, it's your problem. Uh, I, I think that last sentence that they give us in the answer is very, very optimistic for a lot of self-created LLCs, especially those that, you know, go heard something on TikTok and decided to create their own LLC based on that. Uh, I, I can certainly see things going wrong, shall we say, and people not really understanding when it was created or somehow thinking there should be some notice come out to them. Uh, H3 is an updated beneficial ownership information report required when the type of ownership interest a beneficial owner has in reporting at the company changes. Let's say a simple case of you know, Harry owned his stock in the, uh, he owned 100% of the stock of, you know, Harry Consulting. And then Harry goes out and forms the Harry Revocable Living Trust, a trust that essentially is one that he has the full right to revoke the owner, re revoke basically the trust and take the assets back inside the trust. That's something which under the rules would say, under the final rule, says that essentially, well, Harry's a beneficial owner. What this asks is, well, if we do that, do we still have to change the report? And what this tells us is, no. A change to the type of ownership beneficial owner has reporting company, for instance, a conversion of preferred stock to common stock, that also is a different way to look at it, does not require the whole reporting company to provide an updated BOI report because FinCEN does not require companies to report the type of interest. Updated BOI reports require information reported FinCEN about the reporting company or its beneficial owner changes. So, if nothing changes, like I said, if we go from common to preferred stock, or I would say the same basic structure here, we go from holding it individually to holding that same asset inside a revocable living trust, the same beneficial owner, none of the details are going to change. There should be no additional reporting requirement at that point. Now, obviously, once that owner dies, if it's inside the revocable living trust, then we probably do have a reporting event. 
uh, because in that case, we now have a trust. And, you know, previously that person was the owner because they were the ones who could revoke the trust, but they've died. That power is now gone. They're also no longer the trustee. So that's also gone. So now we start looking at the other trust rules to try to figure out who the new beneficial owner is. We know one thing, the deceased guy no longer going to qualify through the trust. There's a different rule if he had held it personally and it went into his estate. That, that was a totally different structure. We get to delay until we figure out where the shares are going. Here, the shares just move by the, you know, by the operation of law. Okay, now H4 is a more interesting question. And what H4 tells us, it actually tells us something that we need to know about. And what it tells us is something here. First, if the reporting company needs to update one piece of information on their report, such as their legal name, does the reporting company have to fill out an entire new BOI report? And here we're told the answer here is one that initially you're not going to like. The updated reports require all fields to be submitted, including the updated piece of information. So if you change your legal name, the reporting company will need to file an updated BOI to include its new legal name and the previously reported unchanged information about the company, its beneficial owners, and if required, its company applicants. Now, that's a negative. However, they give us a piece of information here that may tell you what they're thinking. A reporting company that files a prior report using the fillable PDF version may update it, save copy, and resubmit to FinCEN. Now, this is the first time I can remember anybody saying for sure what I'd expected, what I had suspected for quite a while, which is that they were going to do the same thing they do for the uh, FBAR reports. And one of the options for filing will be to just submit a PDF. And what they're saying here is, you know, you may update the saved copy. So you fill in the fillable PDF, you upload a copy of that, and preferably go ahead and print to disk, you know, or print to paper the actual thing you sent that time. But then you keep that PDF around in the fillable form. And if somebody moves, you get a new address for beneficial owner, we get a new beneficial owner, whatever happens that requires an updated report, we simply go in and we change that PDF for the update information only and then re-upload it again. Now, of course, that, that suggests that the PDF is never going to change. Uh, whether F, whether FinCEN actually does that or whether they come back in and every couple of years add something new, which require you to restart all of this, that, that's a different question. But it is an interesting issue that, yeah, we do know there will be a PDF option now for filing. Uh, and supposedly there'll also be a secondary option through an, app, through an API, an application programming interface to FinCEN systems where entities like, you know, as you do with the IRS electronic filing or as you do with FBAR, will be able to submit data using third-party programs. Okay, next interesting question they ask is, uh, can you submit an update, a late updated report? Well, the answer is yeah, because you still got to file the darn thing if you're late, right? Uh, but, you know, the problem is, then it goes on and simply, it, it, it kind of tells you, but you really shouldn't do this. You really should make sure you get filed on time. An updated BOI report can be submitted to FinCEN at any time. However, the reporting company is responsible for ensuring that updates are filed within 30 days of a change occurring. If they engage a third-party service provider to file BOI reports and updates on its behalf, then it should communicate any changes to its beneficial ownership to the third-party provider with enough time to meet the 30-day deadline. I think those of us who, any of us who are going to be thinking of filing a FOIA probably appreciate that last line. Hey, look, you, you've been told here, you've got to give it to us. You can't give it to us on day 30. That's not time. 
So that's not one of the things. Next up, uh, what happens if, and this is question H6, if you last filed as a newly exempt entity, but subsequently loses your exempt status, what do you do? Well, you're going to file an updated BOI report within the, of the company's current beneficial ownership information when it determines it no longer qualifies for exemption. So what this walks you through, it's kind of odd. And what they're dealing with is the actual rule said that if you're an exempt entity and you become not exempt, but I think the assumption of the rule was you know, you were exempt on the day FinCEN start on the day BOI started, so you've never filed a report. Now, let's say two years later, you you know you you no longer have the revenue, so you're not a large you know a large operating company. You're no longer exempt. That talks about filing your initial report. What this says is, and you're also told uh, in the FAQs that if you started out having to file and now you are you know you're now exempt that you have to file and tell them you're going to be exempt. What this clarifies is if you now then again become not exempt, so you come back out of the exempt status, this will be an updated report because you previously filed an updated report stating you were exempt. So now you file an updated report stating that, hey, we're no longer exempt and here's all of our information. So it's not a new initial report, it's a new update, it's an updated report but only if you had filed an updated report to get to exempt status. That won't confuse anybody, I'm sure. They're gonna have a lot of these things. Uh, this next one clarifies something that I think I saw a lot of initial posts on the BOI uh, come to the wrong conclusion. What penalties do individuals face as penalties are K2 for violating BOI reporting requirements? As specified in the act, a person who willfully violates a BOI reporting requirements may be subject to civil penalties of up to $500 for each day that the violation continues, period. Note there is no limitation stated there. That person may also, so this is separate, be subject to criminal penalties of up to two years imprisonment and a fine of up to $10,000. That is penalty two. The ten grand is not a cap on the $500 civil penalty. Financial violations, including willfully failing to file a beneficial ownership information report, willfully filing false beneficial information information, at beneficial ownership information, I'll say that right, or willfully failing to correct or update previously reported beneficial ownership information. So those are all the negatives. Next up, this will give you a bit more concern. Who can be held liable for violating BOI reporting requirements? Both individuals and corporate entities can be held liable for wolf violations. This can include not only an individual who actually files or attempts to file a false information with FinCEN, but also anyone who willfully provides a filer with false information to report. Both individuals and corporate entities may also be liable for willfully failing to report complete or updated beneficial ownership information. In such circumstances, the individuals can be held liable if these are caused the failure or are a senior officer of the company at the time of failure. That's new information, right? So if you're a senior officer at the company, right, you, you, you could be held. And I think the idea there is both fair to provide information, but it doesn't limit it to that. So it's kind of interesting. Then there are two sub-questions here. Can an individual who files a report on behalf of a reporting company be held liable? And that answer is yes, and that may make you a little concerned, right? An individual who willfully files a false fraudulent beneficial ownership information report on a company's behalf may be subject to the same civil and criminal penalties as a reporting company and its senior officers. Now, that's interesting. Now, again, it is willful. Um, but I suspect from their, I would not be surprised if their perspective is willful is both if you knew, so you had been told about X, 
or if you were being willfully ignorant. That is, if you should have known. But, you know, so you, you just, you remained ignorant intentionally as you're filing a report. Uh, that would probably also potentially get you as the party filing the report also potentially on the hook for a $500 per day penalty. Secondly, they ask, can a beneficial owner or company applicant be held liable for refusing to provide required information to a reporting company? And that answer is also yes. As described above, enforcement action can be brought against an individual who willfully causes a reporting company's failure to submit, complete, or updated beneficial ownership information to FinCEN. This would include a beneficial owner or company applicant who willfully fails to provide required information to a reporting company. So that, that is meant to give you a bit of a hammer if you are a company that has an uncooperative beneficial owner. Because remember, a beneficial owner you know, can be somebody who owns no interest in your company or more, more to the point, it could be somebody that owns only a minority interest. Like, you know, let's say I hold 30% of the shares in a, you know, in company X, but there's one other person who holds 70%. So my theory is I have no real power. So I'm not telling you that stuff. You don't need to know it. That 30% owner can be held liable for the failure to provide that information. I wish FinCEN was a little clearer on, you know, the fact that then, you know, it wouldn't be willful on part of the company and the company's officers, et cetera, that this information has not been provided, you know, and they would not be held willful in that case. But so far, we've yet to have them say that. And I doubt they will. They want to keep all, they want to keep their powder dry, shall we say, basically keep all options open. So if somebody tries to figure out a way around this, they'll be able to try to work around that as well. Okay, question K4. Is a reporting company responsible for ensuring the actual information of the reports of incident? Even if a reporting company attains information from another party? Answer is yes. It is responsible of the reporting company to identify its owners and company applicants and report those individuals to FinCEN. At the time the filing is made, each reporting company is required to certify this reporter application is true, correct, and complete. Accordingly, FinCEN expects that reporting companies will take care to verify the information they receive from the beneficial owners and company applicants before reporting it to FinCEN. That could cause a lot of heartburn, like I say, for companies where you're going to have minority owners who may decide to become uncooperative or who probably aren't going to tell you stuff. Um, you know, how, how far they pushed it is this is open, but again, this indicates to me more of a law enforcement uh, view on this, right? Well, if we give them any line here, they're going to use this to avoid reporting and get out of any penalties. And we're not be able, there, therefore, to find the people who are importing the fentanyl and whatever. We're not be able to use that to put pressure on them. So, yeah, it's being written from a law enforcement perspective, right, on those issues. Next, not terribly helpful, but question five. Uh, what should you do if a beneficial owner or company applicant withholds information? So I love this. They, they start out apologetically. While FinCEN recognizes that much information required to be reported about beneficial owners and company applicants will be provided reporting companies by those individuals, reporting companies are responsible for ensuring they submit complete and accurate beneficial ownership information to FinCEN starting January 1st, 2024. Reporting companies have a legal obligation to report beneficial ownership information to FinCEN. Existing companies should engage with beneficial owners to advise them of this requirement, obtain the information, and revise or consider putting in place mechanism to ensure that beneficial owners will keep reporting, uh, will keep reporting apprised of their changes in information if necessary. Beneficial owners, company applicants should be aware that they face penalties if they willfully cause a reporting company to fail to report complete or updated information. 
Persons considering creating or registering entities that will be reporting companies should take steps to ensure they have access to the beneficial ownership information required to be reported to FinCEN and that they have mechanisms in place to ensure the reporting company is kept apprised of such changes in that information. What this is almost suggesting is that you need some sort of penalty clause or some forfeiture clause. Uh, you know, for owners of your entity that they have to realize that if they come in, they're required to do this. If they fail to do this, they may end up forfeiting their interest. Now, that's great in theory. However, I'm a little concerned about what happens, you know, in various structures. You know, would the IRS view that as a second class of stock, a liquidation preference or distribution preference? Hopefully not, but you still got to kind of worry about that as to how things like that would work if you tried to write something like that into your system. Uh, question M7 now, going on down. Who can request a FinCEN identifier for an individual? And again, very open here. Anybody who's authorized to act may request a FinCEN identifier on an individual's behalf on or after January 1st of 2024. Now, these identifiers for individuals are provided upon request as a requesting party as submitted necessary information. Obtaining a FinCEN identifier on an individual requires the requesting party to create a login.gov account, which is tied to the individual receiving the FinCEN identifier. Individuals who receive a FinCEN identifier should ensure their login credentials, including email address, and related multi-factor authentication associated with their login.gov account are saved for future reference. So here's the catch. While it is correct that anyone could apply for that, the problem is you've still got to get that login information. And this complicates matters because, as it kind of notes, if that other party is not capable of handling the computer stuff, and that's why they had you set this up, handling you know the computer interactions, that creates a bit of a problem because you have the login.gov account you created for them, uh, and that needs to be transferred to them or to a third party should you no longer be performing services for them. Uh, and that could be because you fire the client, that could be because the client fires you. That could be because someday you are going to die. So therefore, at some point, you're going to have to stop servicing their account. You know, if, if, if you expire before the entity does or before they do, then, then you're going to obviously have to stop servicing that account. So that is a complication. The FinCEN identifier can be very nice, but I think the client's going to really want to set that up for themselves. I mean, I think that is way too personal of a thing. You know, get that done. It can simplify your work. But if you do it, you better figure out a way to transfer it to the client. Okay. Uh, question N2. It asks, what type of evidence will a reporting company receive as confirmation that its BOI report has been successfully filed by a third-party service provider? The BOI e-filing application beginning January 1st, 2024 provides acknowledgement of submission, success, or failure. And submitter will be able to download a transcript of the report. The reporting company will need to obtain this confirmation from a third-party service provider. So basically, and I, you know, now it doesn't say the third party has to do this because we don't have any sort of paid prepare regulation here. But as a CPA, you should be aware that this really means you have an obligation to make sure that that confirmation information from FinCEN is sent forward to the entity so that they have a record of the filing and what went on. Okay, finally, this is, I believe, our last uh, question they put in here. Will a third-party service provider be able to submit multiple BOI reports to FinCEN at the same time? And this is really asking the question of, 
can I get my tax software to do this, right? Or can I get a soft piece of software that will allow me just to, you know, just submit a bunch of them through? And the answer to this is yes. Third-party service providers will be able to submit unique BOI reports through an application programming interface and API. So in essence, an online interface into the, into the, BOI, into the BOI system. They'll be allowed to submit reports that way, which is good news. Now, let's go on now to the bill that many of you probably heard of later in the week. This is H.R. 5119, the Protect Small Business and Prevent Illicit Financial Activity Act, which was passed on December 13th. Number one thing to note is first, at this point, it is only passed the House. It is sitting awaiting activity in the Senate, but that may not happen before the Senate leaves uh, you know, on their recess for the holidays. And secondly, I think there is some stuff in this bill, at least there is a section that appears really confused in how it's written. And hopefully the Senate would look to modify that and then go to conference. But obviously with the House out of town, there cannot be a conference that, and the bill passed and adopted by both houses until the House comes back in in January. So I don't see us getting an answer to this real quick as to whether or not we're going to see this when it comes up. We'll just have to see how it goes. But this is not an overall delay in the FinCEN BOI program. That is also really, really important to note. All it does is delay initial reports required. Well, it actually does a few things, but let's say the big thing it does, it's going to be a big difference, at least potentially a big difference, is instead of entities that exist by the end of 23 having to file their initial reports by January 1st of 25, they'll rather have to file that initial report by January 1st of 26. But it will not change the date when entity formed in 24 must file the reports. Though it will push back by 60 days when entities filed after, when entities formed after 24 have to file the reports. So it, you know, it's a little messy how it goes. There, now, this, this whole thing will begin on January 1st, 2024. And some, but not all, entities will get a delay in the deadline to file the initial report. That is important to understand. Right. If this becomes law, if this becomes law, this is crucial. It is not yet law. This is not yet what's the truth. But if it were to be passed unchanged and signed into law by the president, parentheses in existence before 2024, they would get till January 1st of 26 to file their initial report, which is a one year additional extension on the current date. So they'd have one more year to wait before they'd have to file their initial report. But for entities created in 24, the law retains the same 90-day rule that we have now under the relief provision of the most recent final rule adopted. Okay, for entities created after 24, it'll be 90 days after creation. So we'll have 60 days extra, right, beginning in 25. So that'll be entities in 25, okay? Updated reports will be due 90 days after the event takes place that changes information. That's beyond from the 30 days. So what we're doing is we're knocking out a lot of these 30-day limits and we're replacing with 90. That's better, still not great, but better, right? That, that'll be the key. It does not appear to directly change the rules for corrected reports, but it seems likely FinCEN would make that change to the rules to have corrected reports now go under a single 90-day rule, not the weird current 30-day slash 90-day rule for correcting a report. But, you know, that was set by regs, so... That one, I'm just going to assume FinCEN would probably update the regs. Now, again, none of this has been passed into law. That is really important to understand. 
Also, there is a really odd H subsection added. And this is entitled unable to obtain, which is like unable to obtain what? So it's like a, it, it, it's like a half-finished thought is the title. FinCEN may not, by rule, guidance, or otherwise, permit a reporting company from submitting. Uh, that's, 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 that part doesn't make sense. Permit a reporting company from submitting, but let's continue a report relating to the inability of the reporting company to obtain or identifying information in the alternative to submitting a report required under this subsection. Um, honestly, that sentence makes no sense whatsoever. It has been in the bill since it was first introduced in August. I did notice Congressional Research Service in their summary of the bill doesn't even attempt to mention this thing. Have no idea what they're trying to do here. And I can't tell if this is meant to be that they were going to try to add a way to, you know, in essence, report that somebody's not cooperating and let the company off the hook, or if they're trying to avoid anything of being allowed to do that by FinCEN. This sentence is utter nonsense. There's no other way around it. But it's in the House bill right now. I don't know what the courts would do with that thing if it actually got passed. So anyway, if you can figure out that sentence in the H subsection, uh, have at it. I really have no idea what that means. And I have no idea what they're trying to do with it. So that, that's still in the bill. Again, keep your eyes on this bill. You know, we may have some changes, but don't, and don't overreact. I have seen way too many posts or stories on this that just simply say, you know, Congress adds one-year extension to filing information reports, you know, the beneficial ownership information reports. That is, frankly, straight up wrong. Uh, or at best, uh, only partially correct. Right. That, I think, is the biggest problem. Right. And the problem we've got there is, I think that's going to cause a lot of people, if you know, with those reports, to just tune out worrying anything about the BOIs until, you know, basically for another year. And that's going to put 24 ent entities formed in 24 out of compliance. So, you know, watch for the bill, see if things change, see what actually becomes law. But if this bill were to be passed by the Senate, as is, even with the messy subsection H, uh, you know, let's say before they leave town and sign in law by the president, uh, just remember what it doesn't do. And there's a lot it doesn't do. So keep that in mind. It really is a weird bill. Next up, notice 2024-8 was issued December 14th, and it gives us a mileage rate. So let's talk about some of the key ones that are noted there. Business mileage will go up to 67 cents per mile uh, in this case. So that'll be for 24. Charitable mileage will go to 14 cents per mile. And medical and moving mileage will go to 21 cents per mile. So, you know, that's, again, effective January 1st, 2024. These are our new rates. So if you're reimbursing people on mileage, you know, if clients want to claim their medical mileage, you know, all of those things, uh, you know, and charitable mileage never changes anyway. That's set by statute. But those are your mileage rates for 24. It also provides a table with a basis reduction. Uh, if you have a car you're using for business, you claim the mileage rate. Uh, they'll tell you how much, how many cents per mile, depending on when the car was placed in service, will be considered to be the depreciation in value of the car based on using the standard mileage rate. 
And finally, the Supreme Court has granted cert to hear the case of Conley versus United States, an Eighth Circuit court we talked about earlier, an Eighth Circuit case we talked about earlier this year. They granted cert on December the 13th. Now, the Eighth Circuit's opinion in Connolly, as we discussed at the time, was in direct conflict with the Eleventh Circuit decision in the estate of Blount versus Commissioner. Right? That, that was the case. The question resolves around if you have, let, let's say that you know you have a corporation, and you know, there, there, there's a there, there's an arrangement where the corporation, if one of the shareholders dies, the corporation will redeem the shareholder stock and you know, it, so it's under an obligation to do so. And, you know, that life insurance is meant to be used to fund that. Now, obviously, when, you know, when Mr. Blount died, uh, you know, the life insurance proceeds, you know, the life insurance became not just a theoretical amount to be received in the future, but rather now converted to an actual cash payout for the death benefit. And, you know, at least at first, assuming there was no obligation for the company, obviously the value of the company would go up by the extra cash that just flowed in, in excess of the cash value of the policy. However, what they decided in Blount in the 11th Circuit was, because it was a requirement for the company to redeem deceased shareholders, that that increase in value due to that money flowing in would be offset to the extent that it, had to, that it was required to be used to redeem the, you know, the leaving shareholder or the, you know, deceased shareholder. Now, the Connolly case came up in the Eighth Circuit, and Connolly did not allow for such offsets, suggested that was simply wrong, uh, and therefore said, nope, the value of the company for estate tax purposes is still set that higher value, um, you know, and there's no deduction, there's no reduction in value to the estate for the fact that that company is required to do a redemption. That, do, that doesn't set the value under that structure. Now, that's, you know, that, that's interesting. And frankly, again, the, this would suggest, again, heavily that cross-purchases are really what you want, right? Where a third party gets the proceeds, and, but they have, a, they have a requirement to buy you out. That provides a flexibility. So there, there was, you know, there is some talk there, you know, but a lot of people like the simplicity of having the company hold the policy and take care of the redemption. Now, there were some unique factors in Connolly, including how they negotiated the final buyout and some other things that may have opened up a way to say it was different than Blount. So the Supreme Court, I suspect, could still sustain uh, Connolly in result, but not in terms of the full decision. So there is some odd stuff there. But nevertheless, going to look at that. And obviously, they're looking at it because they don't want to have this theory where in the Eighth Circuit, life insurance proceeds inside a corporation increases the value of this company. The 11th Circuit, it doesn't. And in all the other circuits, we have no clue which way they're going to go. You know, how are they going to resolve this? Because the IRS is pushing this. Would they resolve it using the 8th Circuit's logic or the 11th Circuit's logic? So anyway, Supreme Court's agreed to hear this. It should be heard, you know, in the following term. Uh, we'll see what it is. I don't know they're going to have time to hear it this term. So I wouldn't be surprised it may be next term they hear this. Uh, you know, but you know, I, I, I would it'd be interesting to see how they decide this and what they come up with. So any event. This has been the current federal tax developments for here. The week before the holidays get in big force and everybody's out of town for the last week of the year. Uh, next week I'll probably be doing an update for you. Uh, if anybody's listening, I'll, we'll do it then. 
Again, I do monitor the uh, sites. So if, if you're interested, uh, you can follow me on the Connect sites for Arizona or post actually queries on there because there's a lot of people that, on those sites. And they can provide useful information too. So you got an answer. It's always useful to go there on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. And uh, I do check out a similar site, though not through Connect, on the on the Idaho Society of CPAs. I also uh, can be, you've got my email address, edzollers at federaltaxdevelopments.com to send me a question. Uh, and I also do post updates on threads. They're at edzollers there. You can find me there as well. Uh, otherwise, though, look forward to talking to you guys uh, here in a week. For anybody who is still listening on the uh, on the holiday times, I assume, you know, I'm some of you, I'm sure there'll be somebody who'll be crazy enough to download it on their phone and listen to it as they're flying back across the country from their Christmas, you know, or holiday, uh, you know, family get together. So yeah, I'm sure some of you'll do that. So it'd be a perfect way to be on the plane. In any event though, we'll, we'll see about seeing you next week for the final 2023 version of the developments. And, uh, you know, we will then uh, look forward to heading into if brand new year, if I don't basically talk to you before that time.